Welcome back to The Metabolomist. In this episode, I am joined by Gary Patti. Together, we discuss the applications of flux metabolomics to the study of cancer, the benefits of various biological models, and the potential of nutritional intervention to study and influence cancer metabolism. The Metabolomist is the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by metabolomic data. I am Alice Limonciel, and this season we will examine the application of metabolomics in the clinics and the place of data interpretation in this field. Welcome back to The Metabolomist. Today I'm joined by Gary Patti. Hello. Good morning. Good morning and welcome. Gary, you are a professor at the School of Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. Would you like to tell us about your expertise and the topics that your research focuses on? Sure. Happy to. First, let me just thank you for um, having me today. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to this uh, this interview. So my, my lab is a metabolism lab. Um, we uh, we do a lot of work in the, the metabolomics technology development space, but that space is complemented by a lot of applications. In addition to doing mass spectrometry experiments, we do a lot of biochemistry. We work with various different animal models. Uh, we do a lot of classical biochemistry types of experiments. Um, we're primarily focusing on, on two different areas. Uh, one area that we're very excited about is trying to understand what the impact of chemicals in our environment is on metabolism. So you're probably aware that we're exposed to a lot of chemicals throughout our daily lives, whether it be from, from food, which are kind of obvious instances, mm -hmm. but also from somewhat unexpected sources uh, could be hygiene products, could be shampoos, it could be uh, toothpaste, et cetera. And these these contain a lot of chemicals, most of which we we really don't understand how they impact health and disease. So yeah. very interested in in trying to, to to better understand what's happening with those chemicals and whether or not uh, some of them are safe or not. Mm -hmm. The second area of our research is uh, trying to understand the development of of cancer and tumors. And really kind of a broad space, not just one specific kinds of cancer, but uh, cancer in general. And specifically, mm -hmm. potentially how some of these exposures in our environment, whether it be dietary exposures or carcinogens to smoke, uh, power plant, um, all of those types of exposures potentially contribute to the development of cancer. Thanks. That's really interesting. I noticed also in your work now that you use a variety of models. So um, on the podcast, I've had a lot of guests who were working primarily with human samples, either blood samples or maybe like tissue samples. But I noticed in your lab, you work also with cells, you work with animal models or in the way that you use them. Do you have any pros and cons on using some of those models for different applications? How do you, how do you choose which one you will use for a specific study? Yeah, it's a great question. We use uh, cells, organoids, various animal models ranging from zebrafish to mice to rats and, and also human subjects. They all have pros and, and cons, I think. Mm -hmm. the, the cells are the, the most easiest to work with, um, mm -hmm. of course, and uh, they allow us to do certain types of experiments that, that aren't feasible in human subjects. Yeah. Uh, they also, data interpretation can be a little simpler in cells compared to some of the more complicated systems. I think later we might talk a little bit about isotope tracing. Mm -hmm. um, isotope tracing is certainly much more complicated in human subjects, not impossible, but much, much harder, much more expensive for mm. uh, reasons that, that maybe we'll discuss. 
Um, so the, the cells have real advantage. The way I like to think of it is that by using cells, we can define the, the highways. You know, in some sense, analogy that I always think about is that metabolism is much like a, a street map. Um, and what we're trying to do when we think about metabolism in the context of a particular application is understand what the density of traffic is on any given street and how a particular cell gets from destination A to destination B. Mm-hmm. How we approach it in the lab is that cells provide a really good opportunity to define the roadmap, to define what streets yeah. there are, how the streets are activated, you know, how traffic is activated on the streets. What we find is that the ways in which cells transform nutrients in cell culture can look very different than the ways that cells might transform nutrients in animals or in humans. Mm So I do think probably using a a combination of all of those different models is important Mm -hmm. uh, because you you really want to validate everything in human subjects ultimately, uh, I would say, is the end point. Yeah. And we're going to have also a really great example of this this added value of having a whole organism in the, the paper we'll discuss because we're going to look at interactions between different organs or different tissues within the animals that you studied. Even though I'm a big defender of in vitro experiments, I think there's really a lot of great information you can get from cell culture. There are certain things that you cannot do or that's, that you need to know to start to model them. If you want to do co-cultures, for example, you would have to have the idea in, in the case we're talking about or we will talk about to grow the tumor cells with the liver cells and then see if they interact or not in the way that you found out but you use the animal model really well for this in the paper we'll discuss yeah thank you yeah we, we try to go back and forth i see it as kind of a ladder um it's not unidirectional where you have to start mm-hmm. in cells i mean sometimes you can start in, in human subjects and go backwards sometimes you start yeah. in cells generate a question mm-hmm. and validate. Mm-hmm. it's really a bi-directional yeah, I think when you have the variety, then you can e- use each one of them for what it's, what it's good for and then combine them in the best way that you can think of. Yeah, I totally agree. You said most of your work uh, is focused on metabolomics or you do a lot of your work with metabolomics. How did you start? How did you discover metabolomics? Do you remember your first encounter with this <laughs> method and how that was for you? Yes, yes, yeah. So my path to metabolomics was certainly nonlinear. I'm old enough to to say that when I was doing my work, metabolomics wasn't necessarily the buzzword. Now I think mm-hmm. metabolomics has almost become a synonym with a lot of the work in metabolism. You know, most people that, mm-hmm. that do uh, in-depth metabolic analyses in some way or another are using metabolomics, but uh, that wasn't the case when I was starting in, in metabolism. My initial areas of interest were actually related to bacterial resistance to antibiotics. I was trying to understand how certain bacteria, uh, particularly nosocomial pathogens, Mm -hmm. uh, develop resistance to different kinds of antibiotics that are used in the clinic, um, such as penicillin. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, uh, perhaps not surprising to you, a lot of these drugs have a a strong metabolic component. That is, they have a big impact on the metabolism, and it's specifically the metabolism of a particular structure in bacteria called the cell wall. Um, Mm -hmm. So these antibiotics that we were looking at interfered with the production of the the cell wall by the bacteria. And so I was using at the time nuclear magnetic resonance, NMR, Mm -hmm. to study bacterial metabolism. Bacteria a little different from the other types of systems that we were talking about moments ago with cancer and um, so forth, because the physiology is less important. You don't have the, the type of interactions with a tumor. Of course, you have a bunch of cells that constitute a tumor. Tumors aren't Mm -hmm. just one type of cells, but bacteria are a little simpler in the sense that you can grow them in culture and it's uh, 
a little easier to, to mm-hmm. try to understand whether how relevant that is. One could argue, sorry to interrupt you, but one could argue that now, especially like say, if you talk, if you think of uh, commensal bacteria, that you have this rather complex oh, yeah. network now with the host metabolites and all different kinds of signals that are going to influence. So similar to what you would do with antibiotics, but oh, in yeah. this kind of exchange. So we, we found a way to make bacteria complicated, haven't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's a great point. Um, certainly in yeah the gut microbiome, and uh, certainly there's a lot of important interactions there. And then in the context of uh, penicillin resistance or antibiotic mm-hmm. resistance, at least in what we were studying, it was a little simpler. You know, we weren't mm-hmm. trying to probe those types of questions, but but absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. The simple thing was, is that, um, you know, NMR, particularly in those days, isn't as sensitive as mass spectrometry, which is another major analytical tool that one can apply to study metabolism. Mm-hmm. But because we were looking at, at bacteria, we could grow them up in, in huge flasks, liters and liters. I was doing experiments sometimes with 10 liters of bacteria. So it's a lot of bacteria and, and yeah. analyzing them by NMR. And it provided a lot of insight. As we matured in those studies, I became increasingly interested in intermediates and pathways that NMR couldn't resolve. And okay. it seemed natural to me that that one would try to turn to a different technology mm-hmm. uh, to look at those intermediates to better characterize those pathways and, and start thinking about flux. We were using isotope trace isotopes at the time, not really mm-hmm. to trace pathways, but to increase sensitivity in NMR. Um, not all nuclei are NMR active. Um, mm-hmm. We add C13 to bacteria samples in those days because it increases C13 is NMR active and C12 isn't. So it increased mm-hmm. our, our signals. The idea for me was moving towards other technologies that would have better sensitivities that would allow us to probe those metabolic pathways in, mm-hmm. in greater depth. And so that made sense to start thinking about mass spectrometry at the time. Wasn't really, at least that I didn't know the word metabolomics. Um, you know, we were using mass spectrometry to start thinking about those pathways. It was just biochemistry in those days. Mm-hmm. But now, of course, we'd recognize that as being metabolomics. Yeah. From what you just said, we can see that you have quite some experience with the method and you have quite a few years of working with metabolomics behind you. So maybe for the younger audience, the people who are starting with metabolomics, is there anything you can think of that you wish you had known that maybe you could share with them to make something a bit less difficult for them in the near future? (laughs) That's a great question. I think in those early days when we were doing mass spectrometry, when I first started doing mass spectrometry analyses of uh, metabolic extracts. So we would do much like people do now, you know, you, you isolate, you get rid of all the macromolecules and you isolate all the small molecules and analyze them by mass spectrometry. And I was just initially astonished at how many signals there were in the data sets. Mm-hmm. I was a trained biochemist. So I was familiar with central carbon metabolism and the handful of pathways that surrounding them. Um, but, you know, we were seeing a couple thousand metabolites, but when we first start doing those experiments and we were seeing 10,000, 20,000, 25,000 peaks, it was really shocking. And I thought at the time, extremely exciting. My interpretation initially, you know, the computational resources that we had um, at the time were much less developed than they are now. And so most of the things we couldn't identify, I guess you could argue that we still can't identify a lot of those different signals. But I was under the impression, at least initially, that a lot of those represented new molecules that had never been reported before, that those were so-called unknowns or novel metabolites that maybe weren't in biochemistry textbooks yet, but that were present in cells and that served an important biochemical function. 
Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that I vastly underappreciated at the time was how complex mass spectrometry and metabolomics data are. You know, mm-hmm. you could take one standard, you know, one glutamate or whatever your favorite metabolite is and, and put it in a, a beaker and analyze it by mass spectrometry. And in a perfect world, you know, you might think you get one peak for, for glutamate, but, you know, you can see a hundred or 200 or, or more peaks that are derived from that one metabolite. Yeah. The metabolite can break into pieces. It can adduct, it can fragment, it can, there's contaminants in the samples. And, and I just, at the time, didn't appreciate all that. So I think because I had underestimated the complexity of the data, I o- also overestimated how many molecules we were actually measuring. And I think that led to okay. much more sophisticated, uh, complicated interpretations of the data mm-hmm. that were probably needed. So I would say for those starting just the assuming that something that you can't identify as an unknown is probably not a, a novel metabolite. I, mm-hmm. I think that shouldn't be necessarily the default hypothesis. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So let's move on to the main topic that will be related to the paper we'll discuss today. It's a paper about a model of melanoma. So let's dis- discuss a bit cancer and metabolomics. And I wanted to ask you, because of course, when we think of cancer and me- metabolism, we think of energy metabolism, and this is going to be a big part of the paper that we'll discuss and, and carbon metabolism. But could you give us like an overview also from the work that you've been doing with your group? So what are the the key elements of this energy metabolism, but maybe of other parts of metabolism important in cancer that you would like to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. Energy metabolism is particularly fascinating in cancer cells because cancer cells employ particularly surprising metabolic program um, mm-hmm. than what you might have initially ex- might initially expect. So when we look at cancer cells, what characterizes cancer cells, is an uncontrolled capacity for proliferation. So that is to say that we have one cell that rapidly turns into two cells and four cells, mm-hmm. and et cetera. And so if you look at what characterizes cell proliferation or cell division, for a cell to turn into another cell or multiple cells, it has to replicate its contents. Mm-hmm. And so that means that it has to remake all of its genetic material. It has to remake all of its plasma membranes. It has to remake all of its proteins. So it's actually a, a, a substantial anabolic load, yeah. um, synthetic burden that's associated with cell proliferation. Mm-hmm. And so when we, we think about that, it seems that that would require a lot of energy. You know, Making things generally seems like it should be associated with an energy demand. Yep. But what's fascinating about cancer cells is over a hundred years ago now, one of the doyens of biochemistry researcher by the name of Otto Warburg um, in the early 1900s discovered that cancer cells do in fact take up a lot of glucose, which is one of the most prominent nutrients that's available in our circulation. Mm -hmm. But what's surprising is not that they take up a lot of glucose, but that most of the glucose is transformed into a metabolite called lactate. Mm -hmm. Um, And generally lactate is recognized as a waste product of cells. If you transform glucose into lactate, it only yields two ATP through glycolysis. If you take glucose and you oxidize it in mitochondria, in contrast, it yields on the order of 30 to 38 ATP. So it would seem intuitively that a cancer cell with all of these synthetic demands and 
this need to build all this stuff would be trying to maximize the amount of energy that they can produce out of ATP. But the reality is, is that most of the glucose that they uh, metabolize gets metabolized in a very inefficient way. So that it yields a relatively small amount of ATP per glucose. And so for over a hundred years, cancer biologists have been trying to understand why in the world cancer cells would do this. It's not just in, in vivo, by the way, we were talking about that the difference between in vivo settings and in vitro settings, no. you, could, you, you mm-hmm. see the same thing. If you take a cancer cell and you put it in an oxygenated cell culture, mm-hmm. you do the same thing where it takes up a lot of glucose and transforms the majority of it into lactate. So I think that's one of the really interesting energetic paradoxes, if you will. Um, yeah. When these cells seem to need so much energy, why would they, why would they be yielding so much? Why would they be getting such a low output of energy from glucose? Mm-hmm. Thank you. And also one way that we've been looking at cancer uh, for the last decades is through the angle of genetics or transcriptomics or or genetic changes. Um, Because of course, we always think of the mutations in the genes that are the origin of the problem, the the cancer cells. Um, But we see more and more that metabolomics is a very interesting tool to study cancer. So do you have any arguments as to why metabolomics is a good omic to study cancer compared to other ones like genomics or proteomics? Yeah. You know, I would say that the other omics are equally important. I wouldn't say that metabolomics is any more insightful than the others. I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you could, in fact, you could make arguments in any of the omics, uh, depending on what kind of projects or the context that you're sure. using that, that one is more important than the other. I, I would say that most cancer cells are, are rapidly dividing. And so that does require metabolic alteration. So it is more of a universal hallmark of uh, mm-hmm. cancer. So there are metabolic properties, this phenomenon that I described where most of the glucose is taken up across most cancers. That makes it nice because what you're describing is certainly true that there are a lot of different genetic changes across different types of cancers, but mm-hmm. some of the metabolic properties are, are conserved. And yeah. so that that is attractive in the sense that um, it at least invites the possibility that there might be ways therapeutically to approach cancer that could be more universal, you know, that wouldn't necessarily have to uh, go in and tease apart all of these differences. Now, in practice, whether or not that's possible is a totally different mm-hmm. story. But I think the other point that I would mention, and I, I don't think cancer is any unique in this context than any other area of science, is that you know, metabolomics provides a, a nice biochemical readout of what's mm-hmm. happening uh, yep. with the phenotype. Doing transcriptomics, for example, is a powerful uh, type of analysis that a lot of people do. It's very standardized. There's a lot of public data that's available uh, that, that you get better coverage uh, than you do with a, a technology such as metabolomics. But at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily tell you what's happening phenotypically just because you have an increased or decreased expression of a particular transcript doesn't necessarily mean that that pathway is more or less active. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, even if a transcript does correlate with a change in biochemical activity, well, the, how mm-hmm. much the metabolic pathway changes, you can't infer from transcripts, at least not reliably. And so mm-hmm. metabolomics is really a necessary extension to, I would say, to, to understand biochemistry if you want to understand and be very precise with some of the types of assessments. Yeah. And I think in cancer, as in in other diseases, we often see 
the let's say the thinking work going in both directions in the from the genetics to the metabolomics or from the metabolism to the genetics um and it works really well both ways but you can't really predict i just had this conversation with another guest um about a study on asthma where you can't really predict which direction is going to be the most efficient for uh, the study that you're looking at and they're both very valid ways of of looking at the data yeah yeah and i think now there's a lot more genomics information available. So more mm -hmm. often we tend to start there because particularly in the clinic, there's more information readily accessible mm -hmm. um, in the clinical laboratory compared to trying to do something like untargeted metabolomics anyway. Mm -hmm. When we prepared the episode together, we touched on the topic of nutritional intervention. How do you see that being a promising tool for either studying or finding therapeutic ways to address cancer or maybe other diseases as well? Yeah, I think nutritional intervention is a very intriguing area right now mm -hmm. in, in cancer metabolism. Um, we're finding that, that cancer cells require certain nutrients. Yeah. And it's a very provocative idea to say, well, what would happen if we deprived cancer cells of these nutrients, would that prevent them from proliferating and thereby mm -hmm. mitigate disease? And of course it works much better in cell culture. If you, you have cancer cells in cell culture and you deprive them of nutrients, they, they can't grow. They need carbon and they need a source of, of biomass. So mm -hmm. it works well conceptually anyway, in cell culture, um, translating in, into actual patients is much more complicated but perhaps for obvious reasons, but I'll just briefly elaborate on that. Mm -hmm. First of all, cancer cells demonstrate a remarkable degree of metabolic plasticity. So one of the, the complications is, as you're probably aware, is that if you target a particular pathway in a cancer cell, they have an impressive capacity to rewire their metabolism to overcome that. So you deprive mm -hmm. them of one nutrient and they just reprogram their metabolism and take up another nutrient and do just fine. And so there's this remarkable capacity for metabolic plasticity that we have to think about. Yeah. Furthermore, um, the, the, the nutrients that we consume in our diets, while they can be directly provided to the cancer cells themselves, it is much more complicated than that because in, in vivo, we have physiology. And what that means is that the nutrients that we take up, they can also be altered, transformed by other healthy cells and tissues. Mm -hmm. So you might take up a particular material and that, that nutrient might be transformed by a healthy tissue and then spit out as some other byproduct that the mm -hmm. cancer cells can thrive on. Yeah. I think to get into this nutritional area, or at least to, to try to make progress there, I think it, we're going to have to develop a better understanding, not only how cancer cells utilize nutrients they depend upon, but how other cells, healthy cells in the, the body can transform nutrients into byproducts that could potentially uh, also contribute to cancer metabolism. I think those are both important areas. And uh, there's a lot of attention in this space right now. I think there's a lot of promise. It's a, an attractive way to approach rather than having mm -hmm. to take drugs, you know, if you could just modify yeah. your diet. But I've, perhaps the easiest example that people might be most familiar with um, you know, I mentioned earlier that we've known for over a hundred years that cancer cells have a really high avidity for glucose, Yeah, really most prominent nutrient. And so just theoretically, it would seem that, well, if you just stop eating glucose, 
uh, then the cancer cells won't have any glucose and then mm-hmm. they can't, they can't proliferate. Does that work? Um, and, and it's much more complicated than that because <laughs> you know what, what if, if, as you probably know, when you stop eating glucose, your levels of glucose in the circulation don't go to zero. Yeah. You know, our bodies have the homeostatic mechanism to keep glucose levels constant. That is that other mm-hmm. tissues have the ability to synthesize glucose. You know, there's mm-hmm. processes in the liver called gluconeogenesis where the liver synthesizes glucose to keep those levels constant. So even though you may restrict yourself completely of glucose, it doesn't mean that there's no circulating glucose. And that's kind of the point that I was alluding to earlier, that it's important to appreciate not just the metabolism of the cancer cells, but the metabolism of all the other cells, because they have the potential to produce unknowingly, perhaps molecules that the cancer Mm -hmm. cells could benefit from. Absolutely. And it's a beautiful transition to the paper that we're going to discuss today. The paper is titled Isotope Tracing in Adult Zebrafish Reveals Alanine Cycling Between Melanoma and Liver. And we'll put the link to the paper on the show notes for the episode so people can refer to it and have a look by themselves. But could you quickly explain to us the the design of that study, what you were trying to achieve there? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that we as a community have been thinking about mm-hmm. metabolism and cancer for over a century now. And I think it's well appreciated that that cancer cells themselves have deranged metabolism, you know, based on the some of the information that I've already discussed briefly that they take up a lot of glucose, that glucose gets transformed into lactate, um, mm-hmm. a phenomena that we refer to as the Warburg effect, or sometimes also called aerobic glycolysis. So that's pretty well known and pretty well characterized, but what is much less appreciated is how the metabolism of cancer cells potentially impacts the metabolism of other healthy cells in an organism. Mm -hmm. So if you have a tumor and it's pathologically consuming a lot of glucose, Mm -hmm. then what impact does that have, for example, on the metabolism of glucose and other tissues? I've already mentioned that glucose metabolism is very tightly regulated. Um, Many of us often think about that. And for perhaps people that are less uh, metabolically inclined, it would be something like diabetes, where we know that we think about regulating glucose levels very tightly. And if you can't do that, then that's bad Um, Mm because we, you know, you want to be hyperglycemic or hypoglycemic. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have tumor mass, and it's taking up glucose, what impact does that have on glucose control, glucose homeostasis, and does it alter other types of metabolism of other tissues? And that was really what we were hoping to investigate mm-hmm. um, in this study. Yeah. And not only did you find that, but you also you found out about uh, metabolites that are produced by the tumor and that have an effect also on the other tissue. Before we go into the more the, the results uh, that you found, could you explain a bit the methods? So you used isotope tracing and you used also a specific zebrafish model of melanoma. Could you explain a bit those two methods very quickly, just so people understand sure. a bit? Because it's the first time that we talk about isotope tracing also in the podcast. So I'm happy that you just explain a bit how it works. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. When you're using, we're primarily using mass spectrometry to measure metabolites. As I mentioned, you can also use another technology such as NMR. Um, Mm -hmm. We primarily rely on mass spectrometry. And when you do metabolomics without any isotopes, what you're measuring is the relative concentration or even the absolute concentration of a given metabolite. So Mm -hmm. if we look at a pathway like glycolysis, there are 10 different reactions in glycolysis, and we can go in and measure each of the substrates and products of each of those reactions in their levels. 
And that certainly can provide some insight into what's happening. However, just because a given metabolite has an increased concentration, say a cancer cell compared to a healthy cell, it's not always straightforward as to interpret what that means. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a couple of different interpretations. You can imagine that if a, uh, a an enzyme is inhibited, that it would lead to the accumulation of the precursor of that reaction. Mm-hmm. So seeing something accumulate, you might say, well, it represents that a downstream st- step is inhibited. However, you can also have the accumulation of metabolites when the the the, the an enzyme activity is elevated. If an yeah. enzyme is working really quickly, um, it will producing intermediates faster than the enzyme can convert them. They can also accumulate, mm-hmm. and those are totally opposite interpretations. In one case, we have enzyme that's inhibited. In the other case, we have enzyme at maximum activity. But yeah. in both cases, we observe the accumulation of a metabolite. So um, that that can be a little complicated to interpret. Um, how yeah. if you see an accumulate metabolite, does it mean that the pathway flux is increased or does it mean that the pathway flux is decreased? And by flux, mm-hmm. I just mean really the rate of, of a given metabolic reaction. And so to try to distinguish between those possibilities, you have to use what we refer to as isotope tracers. These days, most people use stable isotopes. Those are not dangerous. They're not radioactive. I, often when we work with clinicians and we say isotopes, they immediately assume they're radioactive, but they're stable. So they're safe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and essentially what you do is you, you add a, a nutrient or a metabolite that, that has a stable isotope in it. And then you monitor as a function of time, how mm-hmm. quickly that isotope gets converted into its downstream products. Yeah. And by measuring that rate of transformation, you're measuring the flux of that pathway or the relative speed at which that metabolic pathway is uh, being utilized. So it just provides additional information. If I just could spend uh, another 15 seconds on this, the sure. analogy that's often evoked is, um, is I made the analogy earlier to, to street maps. You can mm-hmm. imagine that if you have a lot of cars on a highway and you take a picture, an aerial picture from a helicopter, um, and I just showed you that picture, you couldn't tell if there was a lot of cars on the highway high density of cars because there was a roadblock ahead and all the cars weren't moving. They were just sitting there Mm -hmm. or it was rush hour and all the cars were cruising Mm -hmm. along the highway at at 60 miles an hour. And so um, what you really need is not a picture, which would be label-free metabolomics, but you need a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And and using isotope tracing is analogous to being in the helicopter, not just taking a snapshot of the highway, but rather taking a video recording of what's Mm -hmm. happening. You can actually see the movement of the cars. Okay. Thanks. And so in the study, you use a zebrafish model. So it's a model that has a mutation in several genes, including P53. And what's also interesting um, in using this zebrafish model, so it's a fish in a water tank, is that, of course, for loading them with the isotope tracer is quite easy, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's perhaps an unexpected advantage that we <laughs> found as we were studying these animals. Yeah, the, the animal model came out of Lynn Zahn's lab at Harvard uh, was developed by Liz Patton a number of years ago. What's important, so this is what we would refer to as a genetic model of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can study cancer. One thing that you can do, for example, is you can take cancer cells in a dish and you can physically implant them into an animal. It's probably the yeah. easiest way to study cancer, um, at least in vivo. Uh, th- there are some um, complications with that because it's very artificial. 
as you can mm-hmm. imagine, you know, you're implanting the cancer cells. And so what, what's a better way to, to study cancer is to use what we would refer to as a genetic model, where you introduce the kinds of mutations that you're referring to, and then the animal spontaneously develops a tumor. It's, it's sort of similar to, I think probably a lot of people are familiar with, if you have mutations in something like the BRCA genes, um, you're at risk of developing breast cancer. Essentially, what we do is we engineer animals to have mutations and similar types of genes, oncogenes, Mm -hmm. and those animals then go on to develop tumors in adulthood, much like um, humans that have these mutations and these these particular genes are at risk of developing when they're adults. If you make a model and the animals develop tumors really early on in life, and then they die, while it's a very aggressive form of cancer, the, Mm -hmm. the complication is that you really can't keep the genetic line going because they die before they reproduce. And so what's really great about this particular model is that it's not so aggressive that the cancers develop later in adulthood. So we have the ability to breed the animals and and keep the animals going. So we have a line of zebrafish. There are other models that we've tried that the cancers are so aggressive that they die before we can breed them. And then it makes it complicated to keep the animal line going, but this one doesn't have Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and this one gave you some really interesting results. So can you tell us what you found out about the exchange of metabolites between the tumor and the liver, especially with the healthy organs of the animal and then the tumor tissue? What what happened there? Yeah, it's really interesting. What we discovered is that the liver is feeding the tumor. It, it's kind of like, as you pointed out before, it's a bi-directional relationship. It's not just that the liver is feeding the tumor. The tumor is excreting waste products that circulate to the liver, the -hmm. liver takes up those waste products. In that case, it's alanine, right? That's the main one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Alanine. And the liver then takes two Mm -hmm. alanines to be specific and and converts them into glucose that's Mm -hmm. then released and then circles back to the tumor to support tumor growth. And this actually helps us understand, better understand the question that I mentioned earlier Mm-hmm. We, we talked about cancer cells being wasteful, where they take up a lot of glucose and then excrete things as waste products. And it doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense from an interject perspective. And this, I think, underscores, although we didn't plan this, this underscores the idea of why in vitro and in vivo can be so insightful. You know, in vitro, mm-hmm. that seems very puzzling. In vivo, mm-hmm. the animals have a sort of a solution for mm-hmm. that because the, what appears to be a waste product gets reconverted into a fuel by the yeah. liver. And this so, waste product is also brought in a very interesting aspect that is the nitrogen metabolism in the tumor that you mm-hmm. also described really nicely. And I got a bit afraid because you know pr- most probably that one of the big difficulties when you use animal models is that people question the applicability or the transferability of the results to humans. And then you start discussing in the paper, the nitrogen metabolism in fish is very different from what you would have in humans. And then I start going, oh no. (laughs) But actually you found a really nice parallel. And also you made extra experiments with human material that maybe you can explain also, um, so that you also demonstrate that what you find is not just limited to fish models. Yeah. No, I think that's important. And it gets to what we were talking about earlier, where mm-hmm. validation using multiple models, every model mm-hmm. has pros and cons. And I don't think you can get all the answers from ever doing one series of experiments. And ultimately, what at all good science, the ultimately what we hope is that it gets replicated and reproduced and extended in other laboratories, which is certainly what we hope is the, the case here. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. When glucose gets transformed into alanine, Glucose, of course, doesn't have any nitrogen. So for glucose to make alanine, it has to pick up a nitrogen from somewhere. Mm -hmm. 
And so we were interested in trying to track down where that nitrogen was, Mm -hmm. um, where, what was the source of that nitrogen. And uh, what we determined is that these melanoma, so this is the type of deadly form of skin cancer. Um, these particular tumors that we were looking at, they, they have a mutation called BRAF. These particular tumors, they were addicted to branch chain amino acids. So they're taking up a lot of branch chain amino acids and branch you know, amino acids contain nitrogen, but for branch chain amino acids to be catabolized, the nitrogen has to be removed. And so the nitrogen was being taken off the branch chain amino acids and is transferred to the carbons derived from glucose in the form of pyruvate to make the alanine. Mm -hmm. And that process happens by using an enzyme. There's multiple enzymes, but one of the main enzymes that's used is known as BCAT1. And we found that BCAT1 was essentially off in the healthy cells, but became highly activated in these transformed cells and, and specifically we're looking at melanoma versus healthy melanocytes here because this is uh, melanoma or skin cancer. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and we have some colleagues who we collaborate here at the Siteman Cancer Center at Washington University, and we were able to get uh, samples from human melanoma samples and go in and look at BCAT1 expression. And we essentially saw the same thing that uh, mm-hmm. BCAT1 was uh, virtually off uh, in, in healthy melanocytes, but when the melanocytes were transformed, that the BCAT1 became highly overexpressed, which indicated to us, at least in part, some of the phenotype that we were observing mm-hmm. in the animal models were recapitulated in what we're seeing in the human disease. Uh, I think it needs to go much further than that to, to keep pushing it forward and exploring applicability in humans. But I, mm-hmm. I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. It's really promising. And you also conclude the paper by suggesting where we could target these pathways that you described so for new therapies for this specific type of of melanoma. So what were your best ideas then best on what you found out? Yeah, what's fascinating about what we were observing is that the liver was taking alanine that was released from the tumor and remaking Mm -hmm. glucose out of it. And that pathway is called gluconeogenesis. And actually all of our livers are capable of carrying out gluconeogenesis. And Mm -hmm. depending on when the last time either of us ate, our liver may or may not be doing that now, but your liver will start doing gluconeogenesis after you go a period of time without eating. But what's interesting about the livers of these animals that have tumors is that they were doing gluconeogenesis all the time. Some of them had just been fed and then they're still doing gluconeogenesis. Mm -hmm. But gluconeogenesis, if you're eating... Um, isn't a pathway that's required. You, you you don't need to do gluconeogenesis in your liver if you're fed, mm-hmm. uh, at least in healthy individuals. And so our notion was that um, could we inhibit gluconeogenesis in the liver, and that would prevent the liver from taking up the waste product of of the tumor that is alanine mm-hmm. and reconverting it into glucose. And mm-hmm. the, the idea was to inhibit a very specific enzyme in the liver called alanine aminotransferase which is what we did. And so by inhibiting the alanine aminotransferase, preventing the the transformation of alanine into glucose in the liver, Mm -hmm. we were able to reduce the the burden of the tumor by almost twofold. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and that was in in, in fish, of course, and the zebra fish. But I think what's exciting about this is that most people, when they think about cancer therapeutics, we think about targeting the tumor itself. You know, Mm -hmm. most of the therapeutics are designed that we're, we're targeting pathways in the tumor and I think what this study potentially illuminates is that it may be feasible to go after metabolic pathways in healthy tissues mm-hmm. because of these interactions between healthy tissues and disease tissues yeah. that targeting healthy tissues might be an effective approach. 
Yeah, and also the healthy tissues, as you mentioned, also for the tumors, they also have several ways of doing the same things. They, they, they can also be quite plastic. And I think if I remember correctly from the paper, the levels of glycogen were much lower in the liver of the, the diseased animals. So if you block glucose production in the liver, you could still produce it from glycogen if you have a little bit, but you're also going to have a limitation here. Uh, in this yeah. specific case, you, you always have to look at like all the ways that the metabolites could come from all the different places. Yeah, absolutely. In that same context, one of the benefits of thinking about targeting healthy tissue, one of the challenges of targeting cancer cells is that they have a lot of high mutation rate. You were talking about that earlier. And so they there's a lot of potential resistance. You know, that's a major problem that we have in the clinic. You give a drug and the cancer cells can mm -hmm. develop resistance to the drug. But one of the benefits of potentially targeting healthy tissue is that the response may be more durable. Mm -hmm. the, the healthy tissues aren't developing mutations in that way. So shutting down a process in healthy tissue might provide a more durable way of targeting a tumor compared to mm -hmm. targeting the tumor directly. Yeah. So I think it's a really great example to to encourage people to look into this communication between tumors and other organs. I really liked this example. Thank you for suggesting this paper. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting it. But to conclude, I would like to ask you, what is your favorite metabolite and why? Yeah, I was torn on this. I could have had a lot of different answers it, and it depends on the day. The, the students that are tuning in, seems like mm -hmm. your favorite metabolite is very dependent upon what you're about to study. Um, or mm -hmm. what you're currently challenged by, you know, whatever thing you're currently focused on um, is always what I find to be the most exciting. It's not what you just did. It's usually what is most exciting is what the problem that you're currently trying to solve. Mm -hmm. uh, I decided to go with lactate as my favorite metabolite. And, and the reason that I would say that is because for a long time, lactate was recognized as a waste product of cells that lactate was produced. It was the product of fermentation and it was excreted and it was just sort of mm -hmm. washed away. And I think in the last really couple of decades, that perspective has changed pretty dramatically. You could argue that lactate is sort of the epicenter of metabolism in a cell. Mm -hmm. um, lactate production is what regulates the rate of glycolysis. We now know it was just recently discovered a few years ago that lactate can modify proteins yeah. um, and it can mm -hmm through lactylation can, can cause different protein functions. It's a signaling molecule. We now know that lactate can be imported into mitochondria and mm -hmm. oxidized. Um, it's very important in that sense is in redox potential. It accepts, pyruvate accepts two electrons to make lactate, but lactate can be oxidized back into pyruvate and release those electrons. And there's reasons or evidence that, that, that importing lactate into mitochondria could serve as another shuttling mechanism to get reducing equivalents from the cytosol to mitochondria, in addition to the well-characterized shuttles, such as the malate aspartate shuttle and the glycerol-3-phosphate shuttle. Mm -hmm. So there's so many things. It also could be excreted, and by being excreted, it can, it can affect the pH in the yeah. immediate environment of the cell. And mm -hmm. we now know that by lactate changing the pH, it can modify the response of immune cells to, mm -hmm. in fact, that might be one motivation or one evolutionary benefit to cancer cells releasing lactate is it can, it can influence the activation of immune cells in the tumor microenvironment. So mm -hmm. what's amazing is most of these things that I've just described are new, newer discoveries yeah. in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of really exciting things I think, um, happening with lactate. So that's going to yeah. be 
And I think it's also a good reminder that in metabolism, there's rarely such a thing as just a waste product with no function. Everything is a message for someone. You just have to figure out who gets the message. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great, a great point. You know, years ago, there's another metabolite that's excreted at high concentrations called 2-hydroxyglutarate or 2-HG, which mm -hmm. is, uh, was discovered by untargeted metabolomics mm -hmm. um, a decade or so ago now. And we had some evidence that maybe that, that was being excreted and not being transformed. Um, but there was some beautiful work that just came out of Marsha Higgis's lab at Harvard demonstrating, just as you said, that, that, mm -hmm. uh, 2-hydroxyglutarate produced by cancer cells has some important Im impacts on some of the surrounding immune cells. So I think you're right that looking at these interactions and it kind of comes down, maybe that's the underlying theme of everything we've discussed today, these interactions between cells, both, both whether it be in co-culture and physiological contexts and animals or human subjects yeah. is really important in defining metabolic physiology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. It's a beautiful conclusion. I love to talk about these topics, so I'd be happy to, to speak with you. Great. So thank you very much. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct, and communicate your own metabolomic projects, and that you're excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, themetabolomist.com. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, check out my book on the story principle at biocrates.com slash the story principle. For regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can follow me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, analysis strategies, data processing tools, and more. And make sure to check out our other podcast episodes on the Metabolomist website. Mm -hmm.